0: Real conversations conversation. and some hard truths some hard gangs, guns, drugs, drugs, and guns. guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told, we have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to the Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romus with you once again, and today we're going to be talking about trauma, post traumatic stress injuries authoring. And uh, my guest here is going to talk about an officer involved shooting that he was involved in. And for that, I have Michael Suguru on the program. Mike began his law enforcement career in 1998 in the United States Air Force as a security forces officer. After that, he was hired by the Walnut Creek Police Department. Here he worked in roles ranging across patrol, driver training instructor, field training officer, worked for an undercover narcotic task force, and was also a patrol sergeant. Michael was awarded the Walnut Creek PD Distinguished Service Medal in 2014 for his life-saving actions during a fatal officer-involved shooting in 2012. This event and the subsequent investigations and impact on Michael's life are the focus of the number one best-selling, best-selling book, Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. The book was described by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, the best-selling author of On Killing and On Combat as one of the most important books of our time and the natural successor to On Combat. Michael medically retired from the police department in 2018 and is now a peer volunteer at the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat and an ambassador for Save a Warrior. And he's also an advocate for PTSI and first responder suicide prevention. I think I got most of that in there. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Um, man, you, you've been through a lot. Uh, and as I was saying, just before we kind of fired this up here, I read through your book and I want to say on air, like, thanks for reaching out. Um, uh, you said, Hey, can you know, if you're interested, you want to take a read of this book and, uh, come and talk about it. And, um, even in the book review that I wrote, it was like, I I'm not generally an emotional guy, but, uh, man, there was so much in that book that struck a chord with me and the similarities between U.S. and Canada uh, policing and and things that you went through. So I couldn't imagine what it was like to go through writing that.
1: You know, honestly, it's not anything I ever imagined or envisioned. Um, They say everything happens for a reason. I don't believe things happen by chance. And to kind of tell you how this all got started, um, you mentioned I medically retired back in 2018. And honestly, back at that time, I was still ashamed and embarrassed to even talk about what I'd been through or to acknowledge that I had post-traumatic stress injury. And so I really wasn't out there sharing my story or talking to people about it. Um, But what happened was a podcast host here in the United States, somebody I didn't know, he was a former law enforcement officer, and he was big into fitness like I am. And he reached out to me and just said, hey, would you be willing to be on my podcast show? And I said, hey, I really appreciate it, but um, I'm not interested. It's not my thing. And fortunately, this guy just kept Hitting me up and asking me and and bothering me. And um, I'm so glad he did because eventually I agreed to do it. And I believe it was August 2019. And he drove two and a half hours to me. Um, We sat down. He had a video camera set up, headphones. Wow. And we just got into it. And I remember, you know, he was asking me some very personal questions and I just answered them. I didn't think about it. I answered from the heart. I wasn't, you know, trying to filter it or, worry about how was it gonna sound. I just answered it straight from what happened and the impact on me. And and when that happened, it's like this this feeling of control that I was trying to have on this to suppress this of this shame and this fear. I no longer could do that because it was out there for the world to hear and see. And you know, I thought for sure that I was going to get some just crazy messages or um, people disassociating with me, but I actually started getting messages all across the world from Australia, Canada, the UK, all over the United States from people saying how my story resonated with them and how we had so much in common and and the similarities and how it kind of gave them the strength and courage to then share with me. And that's really what got me on this momentum of just podcast after podcast. Eventually I started doing public speaking uh, here in the United States. And then right before COVID, Dr. Shauna Springer, who's my co-author, Amazing woman. She's a clinical psychologist and she spent most of her career working with combat veterans and first responders. So she truly gets it. She truly understands us. She reached out to me just on a whim on LinkedIn and said, Hey, I just would like to talk to you and see what you're doing and tell you about what I'm doing. And so we had a phone call and she told me about the stellate ganglion block, mm-hmm. uh, which is a medical procedure to treat post traumatic stress. And honestly, I was a little skeptical at the time. Um, I've since had it done and we talk about this in the book, but yeah. then I shared my story, um, my story, which I talk about in the book, like from all the way from childhood till present day. And she asked me at the end of that, she said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, well, it's funny you asked that because I've been asked this before and I have thought about it. I said, but I just don't think I can do it. I said, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm kind of burnt out. I don't have that same motivation and the drive. Like I used to, and it just, it seemed overwhelming, like something that I just yeah. couldn't take on. And so we left it at that. And then a couple of months, right before COVID happened, she, she calls me back up and she says, look, I've heard hundreds and hundreds of trauma stories in my work as a clinical psychologist, but your story, it's, it's sticking with me and it's going to help save countless lives. And she said, I want to do this book with you. I want to make this book happen. And in that moment, and we had not even met in person i knew in my heart i said let's do this and so we immediately started this project you know covid happens we didn't even meet in person for the, over the first year we did everything via zoom oh really yeah it was literally like a 2 hour zoom session every single week and um you know and then it evolved into this this i mean life saving project that is literally I mean, it's saving relationships, you know, it's saving careers, but more importantly, it's saving lives. And Hmm. our book is very, very unique. The structure of it, the format, I don't know of anything else there like that. So again, I just, you know, we have to go back to Dr. Shauna Springer because had it not been for her reaching out to me and offering to help me with this project, it would have never happened. So again, just an amazing collaboration. And, you know, we're living proof that a culturally competent clinician or therapist and a first responder, we can work well together. We can make things Mm. happen. You can overcome adversity. You can get better. You can recover from post-traumatic stress injury.
0: That's awesome. Well, you know what? um, I I, I encourage people to get the book. I honestly think it should be uh, one of those books that they give out for all the recruits so they can have an idea of, hey, this is some of the things you might go through, some of the challenges. And when you do experience those uh, those types of things, here's what you can do. Here's who you can reach out to. Give them some of those resources right off the bat. I think that's kind of part of this police reform right now where they're looking at educating people sooner in the job about the types of injuries that they can uh, uh, be subjected to. So yeah, I, I think the book should be almost mandatory reading for a lot of the recruits.
1: I agree. We're we're actually getting that same feedback. I mean, if you look at, you know, we, I think we have 420 reviews already on Amazon and mm. I would say at least maybe 20% or higher of those reviews say that exact same thing that this should be mandatory reading, you know, in all academies. So like fire academies, you know, police officer academies, yes, um, military members, dispatchers, paramedics. And, you know, but again, beyond that, this book is not just for first responders or military service members it's for their loved ones it's for their family members and it's for just anybody on the street because we need to do a better job and show the human side of the people behind the badge and the uniform and that's exactly what this book is doing is it's helping change the perception in a positive way of what the public thinks about our heroes in uniform
0: yeah well, you know what, maybe if we could kind of start a little bit at the beginning for you and just tell people about yourself. So where you come from and and growing up, because we'll get into uh, the policing career and then the event itself. And it'll show kind of we'll try and help people along the way and show them like, you know, this can happen to the everyday person. So if you could kind of start us at the beginning and just tell us about yourself.
1: Yeah, it's a long story. I'll try to make it short. Um, I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area in Northern California, was born and raised. Uh, My parents got divorced when I was young. And my stepfather, who I consider my hero, my role model, he's the one who really raised me, who showed me how to be a man, showed me how to be a good father. He was in law enforcement. And so at the age of eight years old, I knew back then that this was a calling for me, that this is something I wanted to do. And I actually started volunteering for his p- first police department at literally 8 years old and you know it was nothing glamorous it was literally like washing patrol cars and filing paperwork but i got an official laminated id card and i remember just like feeling part of something bigger you know having a purpose and that carried on into my high school years i was a police explorer for another police department and you know my my plans changed but initially i wanted to go into federal law enforcement so i was thinking about like FBI or DEA And I knew that I needed my college degree, but I also needed like work experience above and beyond that. So I decided to look into the military. I ended up getting a full scholarship through the Air Force. I went to California State University, graduated in 98 with a degree in criminal justice. And I got my first career choice in the Air Force, which was security forces. And that's basically military police, anti-terrorism, force protection, um, you know, all those things. And it, it was only a four-year commitment. I was going to do my time, get out, but they offered me Germany, which I wasn't going to pass pass down. So I, I moved to Germany, and then 9/11 happened. Short time after that, I was in the Middle East, and so I ended up staying in longer. I ended up staying in six and a half years. Um, I got out in 2004 as a captain, and I went straight into civilian law enforcement back here in the okay. San Francisco Bay area, and that was in 2004, and. You know, my whole life, I've been one of those guys that had a plan. Like, I knew what I, every step along the way, I knew what I needed to do to achieve the next step and the next goal. And I wanted to be chief of police someday. That was my dream. That was my goal. And in my law enforcement career on the civilian side, like, everything was falling into place every promotion, every assignment. I mean, I was just doing phenomenal. I was leading every team I was on, you know, and then, of course, which we're going to get into, a very tragic incident happened. And it just changed my entire trajectory. It changed my plan. It changed my life. And it's led me to where I'm at today.
0: Yeah. Well, and so maybe we'll kind of get into the topic of the book then. Um, So you're involved in this officer-involved shooting. It was 2012. And can you kind of maybe flesh out a bit of the details of, what was involved in that call and kind of the response that happened there?
1: Yeah, so um, I had just been promoted, so I was a brand new patrol sergeant, and I was on my second solo shift. I was working the graveyard shift, which is the night shift, and this shift started the day after Christmas, mm. so it started December 26th at 9:30 at night, and we were supposed to get off at 7:30 in the morning on December 27th. And at that point in my life, everything was perfect. I was happily married. I just bought my dream house. I had a beautiful two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Like I said, my career was off the charts. I remember going to work that day just kind of on a high, just feeling great. And it was our Friday, so we we're going to be off for a few days to where I could spend time with my family. And the shift was slow. Um, we had minimum staffing. There wasn't much calls coming out. There was another team on, but they went home. And about 1 a.m., I was the only supervisor on for the entire city. So, literally, I was like the acting chief of police. And I had only four officers and one dispatcher at that time after the other teams went home. So, I remember, you know, it was very quiet that night. And suddenly the dispatcher got on the radio and she sounded extremely frantic. Her voice, like I've never heard before. She puts out the address on Creekside Drive and she says that there's a woman inside a condominium and a man armed with a knife. And so, immediately, I started driving as fast as I could to the location. And about halfway there, Dispatcher puts up an update and says, Now the boyfriend and girlfriend are barricaded inside the bedroom. And I was confused. So I actually asked for clarification. And I said, Is the boyfriend the one with the knife? Or is there a third subject with a knife? And she quickly clarifies and says, No, there's a third subject armed with a knife. Hmm. And so now just all these thoughts are racing through my head as I'm driving as fast as I can. I can I can feel my heart pumping. I can feel the adrenaline. And it seems like forever, but literally we're talking a couple minutes and I pull up on scene. I find the complex again. I don't know where this exact unit is. And just as I start to get out of my car, the dispatcher starts screaming on the radio and says, units, units, there's a struggle. There's a struggle. And then she says the phone line went dead. She literally lost all communication inside the condominium. Okay. Now, thank God at that same time, another officer pulls up right behind me. And we can hear blood curling screams coming from the distance. And we look at each other, pull out our guns, and we just start running towards the screams. Eventually, we have to crawl underneath an outside stairwell and we get into this open courtyard. And there's literally two story attached condominiums all around us. We get in front of the unit and the blood curling screams just stop. Now it's just eerily silent. We don't see anybody outside. We don't hear any noises. Now, right now, it's just her and I at the scene. We know we have more officers coming, but we've got to get inside that condominium and save that couple. So we have our guns out. We're announcing ourselves, police, police, come out, show us your hands, show us your hands. I even try kicking open the front door. It doesn't work. There's no response, no sound, no noise. I look at my partner. She's standing next to a huge louvered window the size of a door, and it's completely shattered inside to the condominium. So we both post up at the window. We're announcing again, "Please, please come out. Show us your hands. Nothing. We look at each other. She goes in. I go in right behind her. Immediately, that puts us in a kitchen area. Now, through the kitchen, I can see there's a cutout where I can see there's like a family room and like a dining room area. We exit the kitchen, she goes right, I go left. So she's now at the base of a stairwell and the front door that is still locked is behind her. I go left down the hallway. I clear that family room living room area. I don't see anybody. No signs of a struggle, nothing unusual other than what we saw in the kitchen. So I I come back to the bottom of the stairs. Now I'm literally shoulder to shoulder with the other officer. To her right is a solid wall. We're at the base of the stairwell. We're looking up and all we can see is that there's some kind of opening up top on the left. We don't know if that's a hallway, if it's a landing, if it goes to a bedroom. We've got our guns out, our flashlights, and we're yelling, please, please come out. Show us your hands. Again, this now seems like forever, but we're talking seconds. Suddenly a male subject partially comes out. We can't see the entire right side of his body. He's sweating profusely. His eyes are wide open like a zombie, literally just staring straight through us. And now we're yelling for him, show us your hands, show us your hands. And there is no visible reaction whatsoever. I mean, I don't remember seeing his eyes blinking. I don't remember seeing any facial expressions. There was no words, no body movement. And then moments later, he comes all the way out. My partner yells, he's got a knife. He's got a knife. And in his right hand, he was clenching a full-size butcher knife. And now we're yelling at him, drop the knife, drop the knife. And during this whole time, two more officers come inside the condominium, another male officer and a female officer. I yell for one of them to get the taser or less lethal force. The male officer says, I've got the taser. And he positions right behind myself and that first officer that arrived on scene. The fourth officer goes perpendicular to the stairwell. Moments later, the male subject raises up the butcher knife in a stabbing position and starts coming down the stairwell. And so we just shoot. There's three officers that fired their service weapons and the male officer that tried to use the taser. At that time, we didn't know if any of us had hit him. He's now at the bottom of the stairwell. Two of the officers retreat to the family room area. The male officer that had the taser dropped it and then pulled out his handgun. Now, literally. Myself and that officer, just a few feet from the subject, still armed with the butcher knife. He's clenching the butcher knife in his right hand. And we don't see any blood. I don't see any injuries. And all we know is he's between us and the couple that's upstairs. We don't know if they're dead, dying, or bleeding out, but we've got to get to them. And so now we're yelling, drop the knife, drop the knife. And he starts coming back up towards us with the knife. And there's no nice way to say it, but we shot him right there and he, he was killed instantly. I mean, the wounds were just absolutely devastating. And I remember we already had medical staging. I had one of the officers check for vitals. We radio dispatched and said, send in medical. I then had two officers go upstairs to check on the couple. And thank God we got there and we did because it turns out that this subject had been stabbing through the bedroom door with his butcher knife. And this poor couple was physically barricading their bodies against the door, trying to prevent him from coming in. And he wasn't known to them at all. We didn't, at first, that's what I thought. But what we later found out was, he was actually one of the roommates that lived at that condominium. Um, Part of the backstory is, is that there was three males that lived there. And one of them was still away for family. because, Like I said, this is the day after Christmas. And the boyfriend and girlfriend were there. The suspect were there earlier in the night. They're all hanging out, no issues. In fact, there had been no issues with these roommates ever. They were all good friends. The suspect had no criminal history, no police contacts, no history of mental illness. I mean, nothing. And hours into the night, the couple go up to the bedroom and the boyfriend's playing Xbox while the girlfriend falls asleep on his lap. And they later described this, that, Sometime around three in the morning, the suspect comes into their room with the same look, eyes wide open, glazed over, sweating profusely, doesn't say anything, and he jumps on the bed trying to strangle to death the male roommate. And by the grace of God, the boyfriend and girlfriend somehow get him off of him. They get him downstairs, out the condominium, and they lock the door. And that's when they run back upstairs and call 911. Well, that's when the suspect broke through the window went in the kitchen pulled out a knife from the drawer and went straight up to the bedroom and started stabbing through the bedroom door trying to kill them
0: the um, one thing i wanted to ask and kind of maybe get your thoughts on and maybe you can kind of you can reflect on this now and put it into words but right in right after the shooting and this guy hits the the floor what is kind of your thought process at that point like do you are you thinking Like, has this affected you even that early? Or is it not until you have some time away from an event that before it has an effect on you mentally or even physically, I guess?
1: Well, in this case, I remember I was almost in shock when it first happened, like almost in disbelief. And I broke down at the scene for a few seconds and and literally lost it. I realized that literally I had to get my shit together and I was in charge. I was in control of the scene. So not only was I a shooter, but I was the only supervisor on duty. And so I had to get back in operational mode and start giving commands and orders and start controlling the scene and starting making notifications and going through checklists. And so, you know, when it comes to trauma, I think that, and again, I'm, I'm speaking based on my own experience, but oftentimes there's that initial shock. Mm. But for me, it was a a gradual process where, the effects became worse and worse and worse. And it was almost like a compounding effect. And so, you know, it, it was, a, and we go into great detail in the book about this, but, you know, after the shooting, there was a whole series of events that happened, including an interview. Yeah. You know, I'd been up for over 24 hours. I was ordered not to talk about this to the moment when I go home and see my family. And that's where I felt something was off because I felt numb. I felt disconnected. And I remember I wanted to go up to my room and just go to sleep and, and hope that this was some bad nightmare. You know, it wasn't reality. It didn't really happen. And that started my, my isolation. I remember I started having nightmares right away, and those gradually got worse. Um, and again, there's a whole bunch of things that happened, including we got sued immediately. You know, there's parallel investigations, all these things that had a compounding effect. And so, you know, I don't think most people, when it comes to trauma, it's like a light switch, where it's like you're 100% normal, you flip the switch, and now you're just a train wreck. For me, it was it was an actual gradual process.
0: Well, I don't think, uh, yeah, just like you're saying, but I, I also don't think people realize, um, at least as a police officer, probably I can't think of any other career that would have this. So you go through that event, you're uh, immediately kind of, and I know from our processes here, you're immediately kind of whisked away to the side. You're involved in this critical incident. They don't really allow you to talk to anybody. You might have a union representative there or something, but even in your case, you didn't. You're the, su- you're the only supervisor. You, you, like you said, I got to pull my shit together and get back into directing things and people. But here, they, they kind of pull you aside. You're on your own. Then they're going to come interview you. You have to have your notes done right away. Um, and then, like you're saying, even all the after effects. And that's one thing I kind of want to get into with you because I think it's good to show people or at least the public just the amount of after effects so that, that a police officer has to go through all the criticisms, all the uh, media attention. So a normal citizen isn't subject to a lot of those um, other acts and policies. So if a citizen goes through a critical incident, it's kind of maybe in that one moment and then you're done. But as a police officer and your book as it details out, you're looking at like years of, you have lawsuits, you have criminal investigation, then you have, uh, it might even go down after criminal to a policy level investigation. Um, you also have all the, uh, what would you call it? Like the, the critiques by coworkers, you're in your workplace and you come back and, you know, maybe you think I should have shot. Maybe I should have shot sooner. Um, so can you kind of talk a little bit or, or put a little more detail to what happened after? So as you kind of leave this event behind, what takes place over the next couple of years?
1: Well, yeah, like you said, you know, and you mentioned a lot of this, but, um, you know, in this case, this was a good shooting. You know, we were cleared, um, very quickly from the district attorney's office or the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And we also had an internal investigation, which you mentioned reviews like policy and procedure. And that went on for a while, but we were cleared from that. And, you know, we had two victims, two witnesses who we saved their lives. Yeah. And even given all of that, we endured a four-year federal lawsuit where every year we had to go through a deposition which was usually all day long. We were in a small conference room, myself and the other officers involved in this, and across the table from us was several attorneys including the father of the man that tried to kill me, that I took his life was literally staring, you know, right across the table from me. And we had to relive this incident over and over and over. And the thing was, is that I wanted to forget about this incident. I wanted it to go away, but I couldn't. I had to remember every finite detail because potentially I was going to end up a defendant in court someday. Yeah. You know, and and the thing is, you don't know if that's going to happen. But in my case, I did. I ended up on trial. In 2016 September of 2016 this shooting happened december 27 2012. so think about that time frame yeah. and unfortunately, during that time, there was a, a series of controversial or controversial police shootings and police incidents that were going on across our country across the United States and that's where the movement um, BLM or the anti-law enforcement movement really started getting momentum. And so even though my shooting happened in 2012, the trial is now going in 2016. And it ended up going in San Francisco, which is probably one of the worst places in the United States to be on trial as a police <laughs> officer. And
0: Yeah.
1: Right? And, and the thing is, I don't think people realize this, but imagine being a law enforcement officer who's been sworn to protect and serve who has literally devoted his entire life who goes out there every single day knowing that they may not come back home to their own family but are willing to do so is now a defendant in a court of law where literally you feel like a criminal you've got an entire jury just staring at you and in my case what i didn't mention was is that the guy that tried to kill me had an identical twin brother who looked just like him so these nightmares that I've been having for years, this same face that I couldn't get out of my dreams was literally in the courtroom behind me. I mean, imagine that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that'd be pretty surreal.
1: It's it's really, it's unimaginable. And again, this is back in 2012. So now fast forward to 2023, I can guarantee you that almost every single police shooting is going to end up, in potential prosecution or at least being looked at for prosecution and definitely for lawsuits or going to court and i know of many officers here in the united states who have been in good justified shootings where they literally save lives and they are now being criminally prosecuted for doing their jobs
0: yeah i just had a guest on actually uh the recording um i think we get to it in the recording where i uh, just talks about one of his coworkers, and they were involved in a hostage shooting, and yet the guy was still charged and kind of put through the ringer. Um, what What would you say was the the biggest letdown throughout the process on the support side of things? And uh, one of the things I I'm kind of thinking of is in there you talk about how like supervisors and some of their opinions, um, some of the peers. So, for me, that I find is always the hardest part is dealing with the coworkers, um not so much the bad guys all the time. It's always the internal stuff that's like the biggest problem. But what was the biggest letdown for you throughout uh, I'll say the whole support process after this had happened?
1: You know, I think initially that my department did the best they could um right after the shooting because you know, what I didn't mention was that there hadn't been a single officer involved shooting the entire time I'd been in my agency up to that point. So we're talking eight years. And I think the previous shooting might've been like 12, 14 years before my shooting. And so um, honestly, a lot of the people just weren't experienced in dealing with this and they hadn't Mm -hmm. gone through it themselves. And that's what makes it difficult is when you have people in your agency, like let's say maybe they're on peer support or, Uh, Their supervisors or their administrators, and they haven't been through an officer involved shooting, they're not going to truly know what it feels like to go through this process and how some of it can make you feel and look guilty. Yeah. And how that can affect, um, you know, your feelings about it and how it can affect things resulting in post traumatic stress. And so, one thing I remember initially that really bothered me. And this is more of a sign of the times, I think. But right after the shooting happened, I remember a couple of my administrators being interviewed on the news. And they didn't mention what the guy was armed with. Hmm. You know, they just kind of left it kind of vague in the media. And it, it almost seemed like, I think the appearance was, is like, are you trying to cover something up or hide something? Yeah. As opposed to just getting out in front and saying, look, yeah, this guy was armed with a butcher knife. You know, he tried to kill these officers. And that didn't come out for a few weeks later. And I get that you know they got to do their investigation they got to get their facts straight and they got to you know figure things out but there's certain things that you really have to get out of initially you have to put that out there right away because if you don't it's going to create problems down the road mm-hmm. and you know through the through the actual like legal process i mean again our agency was very supportive we got really good attorneys the city council backed us up i mean um they they definitely took care of us the the part where I think that my agency failed me it wasn't directly related to the procedures after the shooting. I think it was when I had my breakdown four years after this event, which was December 2016. So this would have been a few months after the trial ended yeah. where initially I, I finally got the strength and courage to ask for help after years and years of just struggling in silence. And initially they were very supportive, giving me all the resources I needed. But a few months into it, when I wasn't coming back to work as quickly as they wanted me to, that's where the admin betrayal or institutional betrayal or moral injury really came into play. And that's where I realized that I was really just a number, you know, all that work, all those things that I did, giving my life for those many years, it didn't matter. They either wanted me back to work right now on duty or they didn't want me at all. And I remember they, you know, the subject came up of retirement. It was mm. something I never thought about, I never planned for. I was going to do a full career, and, and that's where really things started to turn for me.
0: One of the things, um, actually, some of the stuff you're saying here got me thinking about who it's best to talk to after these events. And um, I actually went and saw uh, Romeo Dallaire speak last night. I don't know if you know him; he's a je- uh, colonel over in Rwanda when all the Genocide was occurring, and but he just talks about when he came back, and he said uh, talking with peers versus psychologists or, or therapists, um, and just like how you would work through a lot of these issues, and you're um, saying like you need to talk to somebody that is knows what you went through, like actually knows what you went through, has had similar experiences, kind of like you're saying about um, Shauna and. Just how she can actually relate to you? Do you think um, was that was that all provided initially for you? And do you think that was sufficient uh, sufficient peace when you were kind of coming through this? Did they they um, give you those kind of supports? Like you're saying, they supported you, but was that part of it, or do you think um, was some of that kind of missing, or something should have changed?
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take some ownership on this for myself, and but I'm also gonna talk about the culture itself. Mm-hmm. So when my shooting happened they did offer resources and we did have a culturally competent therapist who was contracted with our agency. But the thing was, is that at that time, you know, I didn't believe in talking about this stuff and I didn't have a trusting relationship with that therapist. Now that therapist, I know her today, she's phenomenal and she does get it. She does understand it. But what's important is that you have to have a trust already built or you have to have a rapport. And, Really, you want to have this before these incidents happen. That way, when the big incidents happen, then it's not like you're trying to start from the beginning and establish rapport and feel people out. It's like, no, you already have this trust built. You can open up to them and talk to them right away, like I can do today with Doc Springer. Mm -hmm. You know, I can do that today. But back then, I didn't think that way. And honestly, right after the shooting, I didn't know how messed up I was or how messed up I was going to be. And I remember I just wanted to go back to work. And so, our agency, we had a critical incident debrief. It was two weeks after the incident, so we had this therapist, myself, the dispatcher that was working, and then all the officers that were on scene. But I remember that we are all like so starved just for facts because we hadn't even had a chance to talk to each other since the shooting because we had to be interviewed twice. and so in this room now is the first time where we've seen each other where we can openly talk about what happened. and so we're all going around the room talking about what we saw, what we did. And again, it was more of just like, oh, I didn't know you were there. I thought you were over here. I didn't hear that, but you heard that. (sighs) Nobody was talking about their feelings. like Nobody was talking about emotions. Um, I wasn't talking about the nightmares I was having, about the lack of sleep. And I should have been the one to set the example because I was the supervisor. I was the leader. And I think if I would have opened up that discussion, if I would have felt comfortable enough, which I didn't, mm. but if I would have felt comfortable enough and I started that conversation, who knows what would have happened or where I'd be today? Maybe that would have, you know, allowed other people, let them open up because they they see, okay, wait a minute. Our our supervisor, our leader, he's being vulnerable, he's being honest, he's being open, he's not worried about this machismo or this. Um, you know, this, this BS of nothing bothers us, nothing hurts us, nothing, nothing affects us that didn't happen. And so we all literally just went back to work right after that. Wow. And so that was my mistake. And, you know, we, our, our department was very progressive back then. So we had a, a full peer support program. We had peer support specialists. You know, we had these laminated cards back then with these names and phone numbers of people you could call 24 yeah. seven. But the thing was, is that all these people who were on peer support, you know, they were nice people, but they weren't, like, go-getter officers who had been involved in the shit. And like you just said, if I would have had a peer support person who I trusted, who I had a rapport with, who had been through a similar incident as I had, I probably would have felt comfortable opening up to them back then. I mean, today, of course, I would. But back then, I didn't have that. I looked at it as, like, and if I opened up to any of these people, they're going to start gossiping. Word's going to spread. There's not going to be any confidentiality. It's going to get back to the the brass or the admin. And I was worried about ramifications on my career. Yeah. You know, I was a brand new sergeant. I was still on, still on probation. And again, you know, I'm supposed to be this badass military guy, which honestly I was, you know, but this incident, for whatever reason, in that moment, in that second, I literally lost that feeling of invincibility for all those years in the military and law enforcement. So we're talking like over 14 years at this point combined, I felt untouchable. I felt invincible. I was out there every single day, just, I mean, literally stopping crooks, arresting people, no fear. Yeah. But that incident in a moment, I lost that feeling of invincibility and I literally felt like I was going to die
0: over the years as you're going through like all these depositions and you're constantly reliving the event because you said you had to testify like you basically were telling the story over and over and over right at each one of these
1: yeah so there basically there was a deposition almost every year it wasn't that we all had basically it was like one person per year okay but it was all day long where either you were being deposed but we were all there for each other so mm. you're either listening to it for 8 hours or you're talking about it for 8 hours but you're being grilled and interviewed by the attorneys that are suing you. Yeah. So you imagine that you have these four or five attorneys across the table from you with a video camera set up, and there's a court reporter who's literally typing every single word that you say because this is official record, and they're just grilling you, asking you question after question. And, you know, in some cases, it's four years later. Yeah. You know, and they're asking you specific things that happened. You know, back in 2012.
0: Well, the pressure is on. Like, if you don't, if you're not getting the story right, I'll say, uh, you know, then that opens you up for, I guess, more questioning or or a lawsuit or or whatever it might be. They say, oh, well, you said this here, but four years earlier, you said this. You're like, yeah, but it's been four years. <laughs> so, but that's the thing that police are subject to, right?
1: Well, that's the thing. Is so. I'll take you back when the shooting happened that morning, I was interviewed by the district attorney. And then a week or two later, I was interviewed by my own agency for an eye investigation. And then about eight months after that, we had a coroner's inquest, Mm -hmm. which was a court hearing open to the public, full jury judge. I had to give a statement there. And now I have a deposition that gave a statement there. So I literally, all of us, we had four recorded you know, word for word statements over four years that were scrutinized and analyzed when we were on trial in federal court in 2016.
0: Yeah, that's quite the thing to go through. And again, this is something that the public, I, I want to say most of them, if not all of them, have zero idea about. But you hire people to protect you, and then it becomes this. Uh, say it's it's a years and years long process. I know for us, a few members here have been involved in officer-involved shootings. Um, and a, a couple of them have gone through like, what was it, five years? It's the longest one I can think of. Five years. It's still brought up in the media. They'll still post things. If another shooting happens down the road, they'll be like, oh, and hey, this shooting happened these this amount of years ago. And they just keep bringing it up. So sometimes you just, they never let go of it. So I think that makes it harder for members to also move on that want to move on. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your, you in retirement. So after, uh, after you were done in 2018, I guess you're involved in the West Coast post-trauma retreat. You're also involved in the Save a Warrior program. Um, can you talk a bit about these programs and, and what you're doing now?
1: Yeah. So uh, West Coast Post Trauma Retreat, phenomenal program. I went through as a client back in May of 2017. So I was still actually on the job, but I was off on injury. And it's about a week-long retreat. It's only for first responders, and it's to deal with post-traumatic stress injury. And I remember when I went, there were seven clients. Now there's only six, but it's a combination usually of police, fire, dispatch paramedics and it's kind of hard to put into words because literally it's like magic i mean the things that happen there but you go and it's all run by volunteers so they actually have clinicians they have therapists they have chaplains and most of the people are people that have previously been through the program okay which is what i do now i go back and i'm a, a volunteer peer so these are you know first responders some that went 10 years earlier some that went six months earlier And while you're there, it's a combination of like education. It's a combination of group counseling, uh, exposing you to EMDR therapy, um, chaplain services. I mean, you name it, but just phenomenal, phenomenal program where you truly realize that you're not alone. You truly get the strength and courage to open up and share things that you've never shared your entire life. And I see this happen every time I go back as a volunteer where I'm talking like grown men and women, you know, in their forties or fifties that bring up childhood trauma, things that happened to them that they've never even shared with their own spouses or their own family members. And yet somehow they get the comfort in a room of people. They just met a day or two earlier. Imagine that. They just met everyone a day or two earlier. And yet somehow they find the strength and courage to share things they've never shared the entire, their entire life. I mean, imagine the power behind something like that.
0: What do you think makes them feel that comfortable though? Like what's, if you're only there a day or two and then you're willing to do that, is there some sort of part in the intake process or, or what, what is it that is that kind of magic?
1: It's, ab- it's actually very simple. and It's part of the solution. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but when you have people who are vulnerable themselves, who open up to you and share their deep, personal, dark, you know, traumatic experiences and how they've overcome them and how they've come out the other side. Yeah, that builds trust. That builds confidence. And that's what allows people themselves to open up. Um that's the key because if they hadn't opened up first, I certainly would have opened up myself. And so when you're seeing your fellow first responders who aren't judging you, they're not looking down on you, who are there to support you who truly have your back are setting the example by being truly transparent and vulnerable. That's what makes the difference. And I've seen this in Save a Warrior. I've seen it in the first responder support meetings that I go to. It's all the same thing. Yeah, It's all just honest, you know, rawness and transparency. Okay. That's, that's the key to this whole program. And so um That program started in California, but now there's actually locations all over the United States. And I know that we've had people from Canada who have attended, um, from all different countries that have come, and it's just it's a phenomenal, phenomenal program. I mean, I would have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for what that program gave me. I mean, they literally helped give my life back to me. And so that program was instrumental. but Save a Warrior, which is similar, but a little bit different. I went to that later on in my recovery. So I had already retired. Um, and I, this goes into childhood trauma. So I didn't, I never wanted to talk about that. I was in denial of it. I kind of just pushed it away. Like it never happened. And in my case, it wasn't really anything all that severe. It was an alcoholic father. He was an addict. He was distant. He wasn't there when I was growing up. And I didn't realize the profound effect that had on me. And the thing is, is that most first responders, even though we don't want to acknowledge or talk about it, we have some form of childhood trauma. And it can be, like I said, it can be very benign. Like it could be just an emotionally distant parent. It could be a parent who's not affectionate. It could be a parent that is always working all the time, so is never home. You know, they're providing financially, but they're not there to support you emotionally and physically. Or it can be very extreme. It could be sexual abuse. It could be physical abuse. But these experiences in childhood actually make us very good at being first responders, ironically, because we learn at a very young age to overcome adversity, to be decisive, to be natural caretakers, to be strong. And again, it makes us good at what we do. But the problem is we never acknowledge or deal with that childhood trauma. We just brush it away like I did. And now we become these invincible badasses in uniform and we're out there doing the job and we're, we're being exposed to just hundreds of traumatic incidents over our careers. I mean, just day in and day out thinking that none of this stuff affects us and then something will happen. And in my case, it was that admin betrayal, institutional betrayal, which ended up bringing back all this childhood trauma. And I didn't realize it, but because of my father, I had a fear of abandonment and I had literally been self-sabotaging every single romantic relationship I'd ever had. And so here I go now, I find this new family, my blue family, who I think has my back to the fullest, who will do anything for me. And then I realize when I need them most, they turn their back on me and they abandon me. And that's what brings back all this childhood trauma. And so save a warrior, that's what they deal with. Now, Save a Warrior is open to military members, whether current or veterans. Um, it's open to all first responders. And you don't talk about any of your street stories or your war stories. It's all about childhood. Okay. But again, when I got down there to that program and I saw other, in this case, it's not co ed, they have uh, male cohorts and female cohorts. So you're, you're separated. But I saw other men who were openly sharing about their traumatic childhood experiences. Just, again, being transparent, being open, being vulnerable, that gave me the strength and courage to share my experience and then to start working on that and start processing them. And so Save a Warrior, not only that, Sable Warrior is free. There's no cost to it. Okay. I mean, literally, it's free. You just have to get yourself there. It's based out of Ohio here in the United States. It's only, I believe, three and a half days long now. It's all peer-driven, so you're going to be there with other first responders or military members or a combination of both. And it, I'm telling you right now, absolutely life-saving, life-changing. Both of those programs, phenomenal.
0: Well, I think um, one thing you might have touched on a little bit was just the, uh, the amount of stuff that you see in a career. So uh, I was having this conversation with someone the other day just talking about the difference between military and police, and even asking like which job you think is harder when it comes to I guess the things that you see? And it's like even for the military aspect, I guess there's a lot of downtime, and you get action in in just like one big event, and then it's kind of more downtime. You could see a whole bunch of stuff, like people getting blown up and shot and whatever else, all in that one day. But as police officers, Like you can go to things every single day, every single shift. You can see people stabbed. You can see, uh, talk about sexual abuse. That's probably one of the hardest things that, um, I know I've come across, especially when you see things done to kids, um, things that family members do to each other. Uh, so there's a lot to deal with, especially for police, but I even include, um, uh, EMS, like our paramedics, they go to a lot of things with us. So they see the exact same things that we do. Um, just, they have to be uh, a lot nicer to people cause they're trying to get them into an ambulance, but, uh, um, firefighters too. I mean, they go to see some pretty gruesome scenes. I've seen them pulling people out of some pretty horrific fires. So it's just the amount of the repetition and it makes you wonder how do you build, um, and maybe this is where it get you to comment but how do you build a resilient person that can experience that for 25 years because it's you know what everyone's goal is to get to 25 years so you get your pension but man that's a lot of time to be seeing things so i don't know maybe just taking a break from the road every once in a while work in a different unit but you know do you have any kind of um experience with that or, or maybe some advice
1: Absolutely. No, I think you're spot on. Um, you know, one thing is, you know, I'm both prior military and law enforcement mm-hmm. and I'm never comparing like two saying one's worse than the other one's better. But what I do want to point out, and you mentioned this is that, you know, first of all, a lot of military members, they never go to combat. Yeah. And the ones that do it's for usually a short time or a defined time. There's a known hostile area. There's a known enemy. And then you're removed from that situation eventually, and you go back to your base, or you go back home, or you go back to a safe area. You may do that once in your career. You may do it two or three times in a career. Um, I know some people may do it up to four or five times in a career, which is a lot. Now, as first responders, especially law enforcement, and especially here in the United States, we're literally in combat every single day for up to 20, 30 years in a full career. You know, there is no... Downtime. There is no safe area. Like literally, every call, every stop, every encounter is a potential deadly threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could le- be literally at coffee or on a lunch break, but if we're in uniform or people know that we're cops, we're a potential target because there is such a anti-law enforcement movement here in the United States that you know not only are we targeted, but oftentimes our families could be targeted. Yes. Or you know, if somebody has like a blue line sticker on their car, those types of things. So, you know, we are on heightened alert all the time on duty, off duty. It it just never goes away. And so I do think that you can get through a full 20, 30 year career, and come out healthy on the other side. And I think the key to it is to, I mean, it's, it's simple, but it's not, I mean, it comes down to changing the culture. It comes down to smashing the stigma. It comes down to Creating an environment where not only is it okay to talk about things, but it's normal, it's routine. And what I say by that is that you know, it doesn't have to be this big ordeal to talk about an incident or to debrief it. And most times in in agencies today, if a really big incident happens, that's when they call in professionals, they do critical incident debriefs, you know, they take people off the streets, and that's good and that's fine. I think we should do that. But what about all the hundreds and hundreds of smaller incidents, like the traumatic car accidents, or like you said, the child abuse, the sexual abuse, domestic violence, um, suicides, even just natural deaths where we just talk about it. Like, you know, for us, we had lineup every single day. I was the sergeant. So before we hit the streets, we'd have a half hour where we talk about, usually it's like the calls from the previous day, not to like talk about the trauma of them, but just like hey this happened here that happened there yeah. to go over admin stuff and that's it it's very like officious but what i'm saying is if we use that time instead and me as the sergeant leading the example say look you know what i just want to talk about that pedestrian who got hit in the crosswalk yesterday i want to talk about how i just i couldn't get the image of that poor girl's face out of my mind last night and all i could think about was my daughter and you know that call just really messed me up and so i start this conversation Again, I'm just getting this off my chest. I'm just acknowledging the humanity of it, and it's allowing other people to do the same. And that's what creates this, and Dr. Springer talks about it, but this tribe atmosphere, this tribe feeling where literally we are a real family. It's not just you know this thin, lo- thin blue line family where I've got your back in this active shooter situation, but it's like, no, I've got your back. All the time, no matter what. Yeah. And I'm not gonna judge you. I'm not gonna look down upon you. Um, you can talk to me about anything. And I think if we can get there, if we get to that point, and I know it's gonna take a long time, and we need letter leaders at all levels. I mean, from police chiefs to captains to lieutenants to corporals, you know, sergeants, officers, everyone at every level needs to do the same to change this culture, to change this environment. And we need to start that in the academies. Yeah. That's where we need to instill this this culture of it's okay to talk about this stuff because the way it is now what we do is we just wait till it's like too late or till it's we're so far gone and we're so messed up after years and years and years of denying this stuff to where now we do have to be taken off the streets. You know, we do have to go to programs. But what I'm saying is if, if we just talk about this routinely and normally We're not going to have to go to those steps. You can get through a career. But that's what we've got to do. We've got to change this culture and smash the stigma and just say, look, it's okay to ask for help.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, So kind of coming up to the end of our time, I want to make sure I ask you this here. Just You got a pretty good endorsement from uh, David Grossman. I don't know anybody, at least any of my friends, who don't know who David Grossman is. So... Just wondering how uh how did you get connected with him? And um uh I mean he said some really nice things about your book. So uh yeah, what's the connection there?
1: This is a great story. So um so not only did you know Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, who is a legend, I mean he is a living legend. Yeah. This guy's written over eleven books. I actually saw him when I was a new officer. I've seen him speak twice. He didn't know me, he didn't remember me, but he had an impact on me way back then. And he's literally one of the pioneers of talking about resiliency and wellness and addressing the effects of combat or you know having to take a human life. And so and he actually wrote not you know just the endorsement, but he wrote the Ford for this book. And so I'm gonna tell you exactly how this all went down. So um my co-author and I, you know, we were we were writing this book and We were thinking about, you know, before we publish this, we want to send it out to some people, um, you know, police chiefs, administrators, people in the military, influencers, to get their honest just thoughts and feedback on this book and, and see what they think about it. And so on a whim, we emailed Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Again, he didn't know who I was. He didn't know who Doc Springer was. And we just said, look, you know what? We're writing this manuscript right now. We're not done. Um, but here's kind of the premise of it. And we would wondering, hey, if you would just consider reading it and and just letting us know what you think and potentially giving us just an endorsement, like maybe a blurb that we could use on the cover or inside the book. That was it. We didn't even mention the forward. Oh. And Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, very gracious. I mean, he replied very quickly. He's like, Yeah, I'd be love to, you know, just let me know when it's done, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so we left it at that. We ended up finishing the manuscript reached back out to him. We sent it to him and again, replies back right away. And I started thinking, and he he's, he wasn't done with the book, but he sent this message. And he said, he, was, he basically said, look, you know, I'm not done with this, but he's like, if I die tomorrow, you can use this quote right here. And we're like, holy <laughs> cow, you know? And it was like, cause like that's how much this book was affecting him. Yeah. And so I, I went to Dr. Springer and I said, what do you think about? And we didn't even think about doing a forward. We never planned to do a forward. I said, what do you think about asking Lieutenant Colonel Grossman to do a forward? And she's like, yeah, I mean, do you think he'll do it? I said, I I don't know. Honestly, I mean, probably not, but let's just, you know, what does it hurt to ask? And she's like, yeah, let's do it. And so I sent him an email. I just said, Hey, Lieutenant Colonel Dick Grossman, um, you know, I don't, you don't know me, but. I've, I know who you are. I've seen you speak. I, I really admire you. I look up to you. And, um, you know, I, I don't even know how to ask you this, but I said, would you consider writing a forward for our book? And I'm not joking. This guy replied back in like a couple minutes, and he said, I would be absolutely honored to do so. I mean, I was blown away. I mean, I can't tell you how humble how accommodating, how generous he was. I mean, again, he didn't know who I was, mm. but that's how much he believes in our work. That's how much he believes in this book. And so to have his name on the cover of our book, to write the forward, I'm still in shock to this day. I mean, it's an honor. Like I said, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is a legend.
0: Yeah. Well, if if me telling people to get a book isn't enough, I might get you like, two book sales i bet he'll get you a lot more
1: <laughs> <laughs> well that, that's the thing too is his forward is so complex like and here's the other cool thing i didn't mention this so he sent us a draft of the ford and he said look he's like if there's anything you want me to change edit add you know please let me know that's like picasso telling you like hey yeah. it, it, you know here's this this beautiful painting if you want me to like touch something up we're like no, sir. It is perfect the way it is. And you know, we didn't recommend anything change anything. It's exactly how he wrote it, but it's just the insight and the knowledge that he shares in that forward is just it'll blow your socks off,
0: yeah. And you know what and you mentioned it earlier the The layout to the book um was something unique, and i I really liked it because I was able to kind of you you go through like your experience, and then um the doctor goes through her explanation of what's kind of going on and and some good points to think about. So you could kind of just flip back just a couple pages, you know, and, and reference what she's talking about. Um, so you could go back and forth like that. And it, it goes like that throughout the book. It was really nice. Um, nice way to kind of lay it out. Makes it easier to follow, but also, you know, whatever question I'm thinking of Uh, after reading your experience and then she starts talking about things i'm like oh what about this and how does it relate to that and you you can jump through it very easily i didn't have to try and flip through like 300 pages to find the one sentence i was looking for again so yeah it was um, well thought out you got some great endorsements um i encourage uh people to read it and we're just kind of at the i say keep you around an hour so i don't want to go too much over because I know you got other things, but um, how can people follow you and your work? Um, obviously, they can get the book on Amazon if they, they want to get the book, um, but what else have you got going on that people can follow you at?
1: So I'm on pretty much every social media platform you can imagine. You just have to type in Sergeant Michael Sugru S-U-G-R-U-E. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Threads, Parlor, truth. I mean, I'm not joking. I'm literally like on every platform. So um, I do do public speaking across the nation. You can send me a message. I would say LinkedIn is the best as far as sending me a message, but I do check messages on the other platforms as well. Um, I also run a page called First Responders First, and that is also on Facebook and Instagram. And I run a private group on Facebook called First Responders First. And so I highly encourage. Any military members, any, any first responders, any loved ones or family members of either of those, please like and follow those pages and request to join the group. The group is private, um, so I do ask some questions, but I will accept anybody and everybody as long as you're somehow associated or supportive of first responders or military members. Awesome.
0: Well, uh, I want to say thanks for coming on and um, just hang on live for two seconds. I'll stop the recording.
1: Sounds great. Thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it.